welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Good morning, Victory Church. It's good to be with you. Take your seats, please. If I lived in Adelaide, I would definitely be part of Victory Church. I would be. Uh, we love having Tony and Kath come to South Africa, and um, although I've got to think twice before I invite him, because he costs me a lot of money. When he arrives, one of the things we always do is we take him to our facilities, and he has got so many wild ideas. Our pastors are running for their checkbooks, going to do these things, but um, your church has shaped our church incredibly over the years, and we're very grateful for that. Very grateful. One of the nuances, idiosyncrasies of our nation is that there is a great disparity between people's income. If you are not wealthy, one of the things you might like to do to uh, make ends meet is hire yourself out to somebody to do their chores in their garden. So I had this young guy arrive at my house around about uh, five years ago he had still got four years left to do at high school. Uh, very poor fellow. Today, he's still working for me, but he's a second-year law student. He doesn't know God. He's not a Christian. Uh, he's seriously opinionated, though. In our country, we have the ANC. It's the ruling party. And uh, they have like a youth group, a youth league, ANC Youth League, who communist. He is deputy chair of that youth league in our region. So he's got a serious opinion. And very often when he's leaning on the rake in my garden, he will say to me, hey, God, I need to tell you how to run your church. So a non-Christian telling me to do that, I thought I'd take him to church one day. So I took him along with me. Uh, he went to one of our sites. And uh, sure enough, next Saturday, he said, I've got some advice for you. I said, I'm all ears, Sir Tommy. He said, you know when you send those buckets around for the money? I think, oh, no, he thinks I'm a, oh, just after his money. He says, you send it around the wrong time, man. He said, if you send it around, when you sent it, I put in 50 cents, which is equivalent to like seven Aussie cents. But if you had sent it around at the end of your preach, I would have put an equivalent to one Aussie dollar. Full on. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, thanks, Toby. But I began to converse with him about Jesus, about faith. And one thing I realized is that his view of God has been obscured by the church. There, there are things going on in the churches around him that I couldn't believe were happening. And so we had this long discussion. He sent me this text. This is a couple of weeks ago before I flew out here. He said, thanks for sharing your experiences in the word of God with me today. You're a white pastor with a black man's idiosyncrasies. <laughs> He's learned some big words there at university. And then he says, I wish your wife and son a speedy recovery. The context of that text was him grappling with faith. And so I try to explain to him that God was after him. No matter how he was looking for God, God was after him. And that when the word came, like through a simple guy like me or through a message he hears on TV or a song that he hears as he passes a church, the word of God brings life. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. So when the word, I said to him, tell me, when it hits your heart, eventually that hardened heart's gonna crack open and you're gonna be able to trust God. As his word hits your heart, as his word continually comes upon you, one day you're gonna come to the point of saying, God, okay, I give up, I trust you. And at that moment, when you do that, the Bible says in John 3 that the spirit of God The Holy Spirit, capital S in your Bible, will give birth to spirit, your spirit. And you who were dead in your sin now become alive. He looks at me. I thought he understood until I told him the story. I said a couple of months ago, I was taking Sue. Now, obviously, he knows Sue out for dinner. It was just after the 14th of February, actually. In our country, it's cheaper to go on a date a couple of days later after that date than the 14th. So that's what I do from time to time. Anyway, so I was sitting at this restaurant over a juicy steak. I don't know if your waiters do this in your country, but in our country, they've got this irritating habit of arriving at your table every three minutes to find out if the steak's okay. So I'm saying to them, yeah, can't you see who I'm looking at? Do I really want to talk to you? Eventually, after about the 10th time, I said to him, I thought I'd strike up some conversation. To, you know, well, I was probably lonely. So I said to him, what's your name? And he told me. So I said, that's an interesting thing you've got hanging around your neck. What is it? He says, it's a necklace. I said, I can see that, but what sort of a necklace? He says, it's a lion. I said, a lion? It doesn't look like a lion to me. He said, no, it's, it's part of my religion. I said, oh, what, what religion is that then? He says, Hare Krishna religion. I said, Hare Krishna? Are, are you serious about your religion? He says, Yeah, very serious. I want to become a holy man. I said, holy man? Why do you want to become a holy man? He says, well, if I can become a holy man, when I die, God won't send me back down to earth again. I said, you mean reincarnation? He says, exactly. I said, you mean you don't want to come back like a cat? He said, now you've got it. I said, oh. Oh, so I said, so so how's that holiness thing going then? He says, no, not so well. (laughs) So... So I said, not well, what, what, what's the problem? So he says, well, I gave up this, and I gave up this, and I gave up this. I had to stop him because he was getting quite graphic and there's a lady present. So he says, he says, but I haven't managed to give up smoking. I said, oh, is smoking not allowed? He says, apparently not. So I said, meow. That's <laughs> what so I said to him. I really sitting in the restaurant. So I say it again. I said, you're coming back, pal. It's going to be a problem. So he says, no, no, no. He said, I've, I've got it sorted. I'm going to follow a guru. So you're going to follow a guru? He says, yeah, yeah, I found one. In fact, he turns around, he shows me his ponytail. He says, I'm leaving this job on Monday. I said, a guru? Where did you find him? You'll never guess where he found him. Australia. <laughs> I said to him, good luck to you, buddy. Anyway, so I said to him, after he told me this whole story, I said, sir, do you mind if I tell you the difference between your religion and my faith? He said, uh, you religious man? I said, no, you've been doing a lot of the talking. Do you mind if I just explain the difference? He says, yeah, sure, go for it. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. Your religion is very similar to every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is trying to please a holy God. Every religion understands God is holy, we not holy. And so some religions make you sit cross-legged for a long time and like hum and stuff. So I'm saying this to my, the guy working in my garden and he says, yeah, yeah, and other religions make you even kill yourself. So I said, oh, that's a bit hefty. So I said, 
but, but, but many will make you fulfill these laws, rules to try and climb this ladder to please God. The, the guy says, yeah, no, that's pretty true. That's what I'm trying to do. He said, well, that's so different to my faith. Because my faith is Jesus. He looked at me. This is a Jesus guy. Jesus comes to the very bottom of that stepladder. While I'm still in my sin, while I, I know that I'm unable to help myself, because the reality is we can try. We can climb up this ladder, but you just fall back down again. You pass the smoking test and you fail another one. God finds me in my sin. And it's in that place when I give up and I trust him. He comes upon me. He changes me from the inside out. And I begin to climb that ladder, becoming more and more holy by accident. My gardener looked at me like this and he, I think the lights came on for him. That's why he sent me that text. But you see, friends, that moment when you give up and God comes in and he makes you alive and you suddenly become awake spiritually, the Bible calls it, the, the, the theologians call this regeneration. You become a new creation. You, you, you become born again. You become alive spiritually. That's only the beginning it's not the end, it's the beginning of a journey with God. And our journey, the, the Hebrew word for discipleship, discipleship is, is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus, is chokhmah, which simply means to go on a journey. This is my opening text this morning. God is taking his church on a journey. He's taking you individually, and he's taking the church on a journey. And this journey is into, some of you might be saying, heaven? Those of you who have read the, the pretty end of your Bible, heaven's not our final destination, you know that. God's creating a new heaven and a new earth. So that is true, but this journey is not so much into a place it's into a person, Jesus. It's becoming like Jesus. Paul put it this way to the Galatians in Galatians 4. He says, I struggle and I strain. He's talking about praying, Galatians 4.19. I struggle and I strain like a woman giving birth. I mean, that's a scary picture. <laughs> Especially for Paul, shipwrecked, beaten. Don't know what he knows about childbirth, but he's saying, I'm straining in prayer till Christ be formed in you. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he puts it this way, that you're going to be changed from one degree of glory to another more and more into the image of Jesus. And so there's a transformation that goes, that takes place in the life of a, of a believer. So you had Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God is busy with you as an individual Christian. He's a busy with victory as a, as a local church. You're his workmanship. He's, he's working on you. And this journey, he's adjusting you. He's tweaking you. He's making you more like him. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. 
So God has not only prepared you for the journey, He's prepared the journey for you. Not only prepared you to become like Jesus and to do stuff with Him, but He's prepared the stuff for you to do. But here's the thing. Just because you saved, just because you're on your way to heaven, just because God has created the good works for you to do does not mean you automatically do them. You can't just swing there in your hammock and say, God's going to do it for me. It's a journey. It's a walk. It's a walk into it. I love the energy in this church this morning. I love the stories of what was going on. You guys are on a journey that God's prepared beforehand for you to do. And so... Uh, The Old Testament is a picture of the church. When you read in your Bible, God's dealings with Israel, it was like a shadow, it was like a picture. There are stories there that that point to the fact that the Christian walk is a journey. Sometimes you go around mountains. Sometimes it doesn't look so pretty, but nonetheless, God is with you on a journey. Now, there is a particular book in the Bible. One of my favorite books is the book of Judges. The book of Judges was written about 1050 BC. It was in the time of kings. How do we know that? Because in the opening chapter it says, in the days when Israel had no king, which means that he was writing in the time of a king, so either the time of David or the time of Saul, Samuel probably writing it, 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 it uh, applies to the dispensation between Joshua and the kings. So Israel had come out of the desert, right? That's one generation They'd taken Jericho. For those of you who are new to the Bible, there was a, a wall came down and the Israelites went into this new land. But then there was a season from there until King David and King Saul where they lived amongst giants, where they lived amongst godless people. And that period is captured in your Bible in Judges. And this is the story that happens over and over again. People are worshiping God like, like we are today. In Adelaide, you are God worshippers, most of you, in a city that doesn't all worship God. So what happened to Israel approximates you today. So there you are in this community, a lot of godless people running around, but God's got them on a journey. What happens is that they behave themselves and they worship God for seasons and then they look over the fence and they decide, oh, we'll leave our God. They worshipped other gods. These guys worshipped Moloch. They sacrificed their children. They uh, worshipped Baal. It was despicable. And do you know what God did when Israel did that? He stepped back and he said, Okay, if you want to live like them, I'm just going to remove myself. I'm waiting for you. But you've got to come to your senses. I'm not going to rush in there and pretend everything's all right. And so what happens 12 times in this book of Judges is that Israel goes into a terrible state of captivity amongst these giants. While they're worshiping Baal, God says, okay, if you want to be like them, let them rule you. And 12 times they come to their senses and they cry out to God and say, God, rescue us. I don't know why we're living like this. We know you're alive. And at that point, God sends a judge, Samson, Gideon, Lady Deborah, she's a serious lady. Sends a judge, sends a savior, sends a rescuer. 
he rescues them and then they, they work with, and this, this pattern happens again and again and again on the journey. And it happens today in Christian circles. You'll see a guy, I mean, you heard the story. I grew up at a Christian home and then I just went off and I lived among some giants until I came to a moment where I needed to turn back to God. And now God's got me and I'm, and I'm living for him. You say, isn't it a bit rough? Why, why can't God just fix it? How can he just stop me? I'm going that way. He just hits me back in the line. But you know what will happen? Then you'll become like a, a puppet. And God didn't create you that way. He created you in his image. He wants love freely given. And so his way to get your heart is to step back and say, now turn to me, want me. Look for me. Turn to me. Jesus told the same story with a prodigal son. This guy had everything. God represents the father in that story. The, the boy represents a runaway Christian. The father doesn't run into the pigsty, stuff blankets and pop tranquilizers in there and say, it'll be all right, boy. He lets him come to his senses and say, I want God. I need God. I I need to go to him. When I was about 19, I thought I could uh, solve any problem. I met this homeless man. I brought him home with me. Before I was married, I let him sleep in a bed next to me. I tried to fix him in every way. Gave him a set of dentures. He had no teeth. He was a substance abuser. I gave him a new set of threads. I helped him with his exercise regime, but this guy just ripped me off. Day after day, he was stealing from me. He came home one day in his boxes, in his underpants, and he says, I've been beaten up and robbed of my three-piece suit. <laughs> when I realized I was getting ripped off, ripped off I, I put him onto the street. Some of my friends came to me and said, God, you're so hard, man, you're so... So maybe for one night, I didn't sleep. <laughs> 14 years later, finished a preach at our facility, and I'm, I'm preaching. I see a distinguished-looking guy at the back. Looks like Sean Connery, cross-clock beard, graying. He walks up to me at the end of the meeting, and so uh, immediately I'm looking for exits <laughs> because he's, he's working with poor purpose. And uh, he puts out his hand. He tells me what his name is. I said, no way. I looked at him. It was this guy. He says, I've... I've got saved. He looks me in the eye. He says, when I was hanging with you, I was not a believer in Jesus. I ripped you off. I said, I know you ripped me off. I'm, I'm looking for my wallet at that point. I'm busy. I'm busy thinking. <laughs> he says, I've come to say sorry. I said, that, that's amazing. What happened? He said, well, I went to a rehab. And in the rehab, in the gutter, I met God. He said, and then I got married. I said, what? Somebody married you? I, I can't believe it. So he says, look at my wife. So there's this blonde, looked like a supermodel walking down. Now I think this is really a con. I think he's hired a lady of the night or something. So I'm thinking, I need some elders, quick. So they're standing here in front of me. This is the story. She used to volunteer at that rehab. When he got saved, he started volunteering there. After five years, they fell in love. They got married. An amazing story. But how's this? How's this? As long as I 
was shoving blankets in his pigsty, giving him three-piece suits and popping him tablets, he wasn't turning. So that's the macro picture of the book of Judges. I'm going to take us to a judge for the next 15 minutes called Ehud. He's a great judge. Now, he is a picture of Jesus, a rescuer. Israel had been in trouble for 18 years. They called out for help, a savior, a rescuer. God sends Ehud from amongst them. Jesus came into the tribe of man, into the household of mankind, and he rose up within the household of mankind, and he rescued us. Ehud is a picture of Jesus. But actually, he's also, in his humanity, because he's a man just like me and you, is a picture of you and me, laying hold of that which God's prepared for him. And so I've got a couple of things I want to look at in the life of Ehud because we don't automatically walk into our destiny. It doesn't just happen. You walk into it. He has prepared good works for you and he's prepared the, the, you for the works, but he wants you to go for the walk. I'll give you three things that we think we can learn from the life of Ehud. Let's pick up the story from verse 12. Judges 3 verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now Moab was a terrible crowd. They came from the incest of Lot's daughter and Lot. Getting the Ammonites and the Malachites, that's the grandson of Esau, uh, to join him. Eglon came and he attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, Israel cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer or a savior, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite. I don't know if left-handedness is genetic, but the Benjamites had lots of left-handers. Just as an aside, <laughs> Chapter 20, there's 700 lefties there. It's like the Australian cricket team. Oh, I, won't, I won't go there. I won't go there. But anyway, this Benjamite, he was left-handed. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon. So God raises up this leader. He's now going to the king that's oppressing them. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. That's about a foot and a half, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Sometimes the Bible is not politically correct. <laughs> After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. So he runs back again. Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room on his palace, and he said, I have a message from God for you. The king arose from his seat. Ehud reached into his, his, with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. <laughs> it's really not politically correct, is it? So it's like the blubber goes over the handle is what it's saying, and his bowels discharged, which means he messed in his pants, that's what that, that means, 
Ehud did not pull out the sword, probably because of all that was going on there. And the fat closed over it. I mean, this is very descriptive. Then Ehud went out onto the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors in the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. That's because of the smell, I'm assuming. They went to the point of embarrassment when they were passing out from the smell. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. They saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country. And Ephraim and the Israelites went down with him from the hill country and him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and they took possession of the fords of Jordan. And, they, and he led Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped on that day. Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. About two months ago, I read this text to our church and uh, there was a very famous athlete, lady athlete, triathlete in the back of our building who was not saved. She was absolutely horrified that you laughed at a man getting murdered like that. She said, this is insane. How can a church be happy about people killing each other? What I forgot to say in the story and I forgot to say now, that's why I'm repeating it, is that this is not like the murder on the the porch next door. You know what I'm saying? This is like Osama bin Laden being taken out by the Marines, which still didn't placate her, but anyway. anyway. So uh, God picks this obscure man with left-handed ability to go and rescue Israel. He picks him for this specific work. If you look through the book of Judges, it amazes me who he picks. He picks guys hiding in luggage. He picks guys who are the bastard sons of prostitutes who despised by their families. He picks those who are insecure for a majestic work. You and me, you might say, look, I'm disqualified. I'm uneducated. God particularly specializes in the uneducated. Particularly. His disciples were uneducated, ordinary men. I'm a stutterer. I'm a stammerer. He loves picking stutterers. He picked a murderer, Moses. Imagine picking a guy to teach the church and he picks a Pharisee. I mean, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. And then he picks one to be the apostle, Paul. He chooses the most unlikely. He chooses those in pain. Some of you might be saying, I've got so much pain, I, I can't. I tell you what, that story we've just heard, was a Kimmy, wasn't it? No pain, no history. In fact, can exclude her from the purposes and the call that God has for her. In fact, funnily enough, God seems to take the pain. He seems to take the, the things that we think disqualifies, and those are the very things that He uses, like in the story we've just heard. And so, He says to Ehud, You the man. My first point is this. That to go into your destiny, your attitude has got to be more and more like that of Christ. You're going to be victims of many things in your life. You shouldn't be victims of your own attitude. (laughs) You, you, You can control that. This guy, Ehud, he had a lot of spunk. After 18 years, he screams out and he shouts, follow me. He orders, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into my hands. 
You see, his, his attitude, his posture was not on his own ability. It's the Lord has given it. It's because of your position as a Christian. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. You're able to stand up and you're able to go. And, the fact that you know he's prepared works for you should shape your attitude. It's not just things that your elders are designing for you. not just things that you're thinking of. God has designed works for you. Your attitude should be that of Christ. The Bible tells us in Galatians, that of Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He went through the pain of the cross because of the joy coming. And sometimes on this journey, it looks a little bit painful. This is the attitude of Christ. We go through that for the joy that he's prepared, he set before us. I have got a, uh, a son. He's eight years old. His name's Keegan. And he's generally full of beans. He loves to play rugby. That's union in our country. One morning, I was lying in bed and, uh, about a couple of years ago, and Keegan arrives at our bedroom door before I'm awake, and it looked like he just got out of the wrong side of the bed. He was glum. His head was down. We asked him how he was doing. He just didn't even answer. I don't know what possessed me, but I jumped out of my bed, and I'm not the most supple of guys. I jumped out. I picked him up. I sprinted through to his bedroom. I chucked him in his bed. I, I put the blankets over his, right up to his eyes. And I said, Keegs, my boy. He's looking at me like, is my dad going to kill me right now? I said, you can't get out of bed like this. He looks back and he goes, okay, dad, okay, whatever you say. So, so I said, my boy, you can't start a day like this. If you start like this, where are you going to end up? I said, you wait in, the, in your bed. If you've got a big smile on your face and you know that God's given you today. I walk back to my bed just checking all my legs and I, I climb back in. About five minutes later, I hear a knock at the door. And there's my son. <laughs> Is it safe to come in? You're saying, Grant, what are you? You're just conditioning him like a Pavlovian dog. I don't care. As long as he knows, as long as he knows, God has got a plan for him. God has rescued him. God has prepared works for him. God has prepared him for the works. Our attitude should be that of Christ. We can have a little fun with that, but we'll move on to the next one. This is, this is the second thought that I have. This guy worked pretty hard. I love this scripture in John 15. It says, Jesus says this, My father is always at work, and I too am working. Oh, what about the Sabbath there, Grant? That's a message for another sermon. God says... My father is always at work and I too am working. You don't walk into your destiny swinging in your hammock all day. This guy was a hard worker. You know what he did? He made a knife. He didn't go and buy it at, what's that, bunnies or whatever you call it? That, whatever that shop is. Do they call your man shop bunnies? Bunnies. Oh, bunnies. Oh, bunnies. Okay. Okay. So, I'm just checking. Just checking. <laughs> Okay, so he makes this knife, this knife about this long, and, uh, and then not only does he go to the, the palace, what he does is he runs back to the stone images, then he runs back again. He's got this plan worked out. He didn't do this lazily. His call was clearly worked out. He knows what he's going to say to the fat king. The guy gets up. He takes, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. He takes, but the Bible does. He takes his hand slaps it and he runs he run, then he finishes the job he takes out 10,000 men this is hard work 
our destiny, what God, God has called us to, is worth the work. It's worth the investment. I've heard some preachers say, work came because of the fall. They didn't read their Bible properly. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work the garden. The work maybe got corrupted, but what you invest in is what you get rewards from. If God has prepared works for you, you want to invest in those. Sometimes, not too often, I get involved in marriage counseling. I've heard this time and time again. A bloke will say to me, you know something? I'm married. I'm I'm married to the Antichrist, man. Say, say, say what? She's a witch. She's an absolute witch. She's got a spell on my family. She's got a spell on everything. I said, I said, what? I generally ask him this question. Were you stupid enough to marry the Antichrist? Is that what you did? No ways, bro. She, she, she bewitched me. She was this beautiful little saintly thing when I married her. Now, she is just, I think God wants me to divorce her. I normally stop at this point and say to them something like this. Tell me something. Let me get this right. You married a beautiful, saintly little girl. Now, she's like a witch. Yeah, you got it. So, so she wasn't married to you? You married her. The only consistent thing in her life for the last 15 years is you. And now she's the Antichrist? Do the maths, buddy. You see... What, what you invest, what you invest in, and what you, what you neglect to invest in, you walk in. Ehud worked hard. God wants our attitude to line up with that of Jesus. I think it's a Philippians quote, that not Galatians. He wants us to work hard. And let me land with this thought. We need this conviction. God himself wants you to walk into your destiny. He wants you to. Turn in your Bibles, please, with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Why are you turning there? Let me tell you what I, I say to our church every now and again. We've got some theological professors amongst our number. So I love to push them in terms of what's good theology. So uh, one morning I leaned across from the pulpit like this and I got the cameraman a pre-organized signal to get right up close to my face and I said to them, okay guys, do you want to know what really good theology is? Take out your pens quickly. Listen to this. The most profound theology that you're ever, ever going to hear. Are you ready? I can see the professors saying, okay, here we go. I say, God is not in a bad mood. They look at me. God is not angry with you. Just think about this, professors. I didn't say that, but just think about this. If God was a schizophrenic maniac who swung in his moods, He would obliterate you long ago. The posture of God is this. He's abounding in love and he's slow to anger. 
Many churches have this view of God, that he's this angry God with a stick in his hand, and he's got hellfires waiting. And any Christian that's not behaving, whoa, you might also go there. Whack! There is judgment. But the posture of God is love. God so loved the world, he sent his son. He so, and now he sent you and me on a mission. He's prepared works for us. He's prepared stuff for us to do to continue that mission of his, to put out his love, to put out his kindness of rescue. You've been rescued to live like this. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, but as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. He sends his spirit to tell us about these works. He sends his Holy Spirit to describe the mission in front of us. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? In other words, who knows my wife's thoughts except her? I've been wondering that for 20 years. <laughs> I've got a beautiful, wonderful lady. And so he's saying, who knows a man's heart, no matter how beautiful they are, no matter how, except the person themselves. He uses that and he says, and so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God. You see, that moment when spirit gave birth to spirit in you, you received the spirit of God. And part of what he's given you is eyes to see along the journey. Who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. One of you could... All stand together with me, please. And I'd like to hand over to Tony in a moment. Does the band normally come up? Let's have the band up. I'm going to pray this prayer. That the Holy Spirit, you know when the church gathers like this, God says, I'm present. I'm in your midst. God, not, not a theory in your midst, God himself. And one of the things he wants to show you, he wants to reveal to you, is what he's prepared for you. He's prepared a relationship with Jesus for you. But he's prepared things for you to do. He's prepared a journey for you to go on. He's prepared a mission of rescue that reflects God. Once your heart right, your attitude right, once you're working hard, you can learn many other lessons from Ehud. We didn't go there today. But he sends his spirit to show us those things. Each one of your calls is unique. So you've got an individual plan, but somehow, mysteriously and beautifully, God weaves your individual plan into the Victory Church plan. He puts you in a family. You have an individual plan, and he weaves that plan into the church's plan. He wants to show you that today. Holy Spirit, as we worship you, Lord God, I pray that you open our eyes, the eyes of our spirit, that we may see you more clearly, we may see your love more clearly.
we may know this rescuing heart more clearly. And we would see the steps that you laid out before us. Thank you for preparing good works for us in advance. I pray, Lord God, that over every man and woman in this place, those that are on fire for you, those who may be visitors this morning, that you would make it plain to them why you've saved them. In Jesus' name. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.